Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Payne Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, shooting editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm 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 doing well. What am I what am I doing with my life? I'm closely following the news. You know, we we we, we record these things. So the you know the the news is it's always going to be a little bit dated. Yesterday, as we're recording, somebody almost tried to kill Brett Kavanaugh. I'm 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 paying attention to the the danger posed to the elites of our country. It's like yeah, it's like you know I've enjoyed the coverage. It's like somebody had a gun near Brett Kavanaugh's house. There's there's nothing more that we can say about whether those two things right. are causally related. Right, right, right. No, there's a guy with a gun. Brett Kavanaugh was there. Also, you draw your own conclusions. I mean, but but to be fair, Charles, I mean, you know, without prejudice to the specific question of Brett Kavanaugh, the elites do kind of suck. There's a long and storied American tradition of killing killing leaders. We've been we've been doing it for we've been doing it for centuries. Indeed, they're letting John Hinckley Jr. out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He's going to go on tour. Yeah, bad. Yeah, he's uh, he's, he's, he's he's a musical foreign. Speaking of John Hinckley Jr. and the people that various people want to kill, Aaron, do you want to tell our listeners about our topic this week? Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the elites, one of the most reviled segments of American society. But in particular, we're going to be talking about the kind of relationship between who the elite are, elite accountability. And then what is often called state capacity, the ability of government to get shit done, in essence. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of supercharged debates about state capacity. You know, why did some governments at least initially seem to handle the virus better than others? This was a this was a common debate and a common question. And one of the most common answers was that, you know, it's not necessarily democracy versus autocracy or anything like that. It's that certain countries just have, you know, not just better elites, but but uh, better elites who are better at getting things done and actually implementing policy. And so, you know, we'll get to this in a minute, but our, our guest has argued that part of why the quality of our governance has declined is that we no longer hold elites accountable for their failures or wrongdoings. You know, for example, if the CDC can't manufacture a basic test, right? Nobody resigns over that. In past eras of American governance, arguably, you might have seen more punishment for a monumental failure like that, that totally, you know, caused an epidemic to spin out of control. So in this episode, we're kind of going to address two questions. One, sort of, is there really less accountability for elites in the West than there used to be? Is that sort of the reason why we seem to be governed worse than we used to be? That's at least a widely held perception. And if that's the case, why? You know, what what structural changes have happened? What accountability mechanisms have atrophied, and how can we rebuild them? So, Charles, I, I know you have some some hot takes on this topic. What what are they to start? Yeah, I mean, I I I I, I suppose I'm going to be the skeptic today. Insofar as you know, I, I was I was I was to say I'm a populist, except saying I'm a populist is all sorts of baggage that I don't necessarily want to commit to. But I am I am sort of broadly skeptical of the belief that some people are orders of magnitude more competent to govern than others, not because I sort of believe necessarily in, in high average competence, because I believe in low average competence. And I think the lessons both of several hundred years of American history and also of the past several years is that even those sort of putative elites are A, not particularly functional, B, not particularly uh, respectable, and C, fairly corrupt. And so I guess I'm I'm a pessimist about all of this. Maybe our guest can convince me that I shouldn't be a pessimist, that the you know, real, real change better leads are possible, but that's where I come from. Yeah. So, so part of what I want to probe here, and you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I think there's an interesting question of, of what you might call venality versus vitocracy, right? One explanation for why things suck is that our elites are just more corrupt and crappy than they used to be. And you might think that that's just because we've kind of normalized elite failure, right? Clinton or, or elite misbehavior, you know, Clinton gets caught lying under oath. He doesn't resign. The CDC officials screw up with COVID testing, no resignations for how any of the public health establishment handled COVID, which I, to this day, really find incredible. But then, you know, there's 
this other question, well, is it that the elites just suck and that, you know, they don't hold themselves accountable or are there kind of concrete institutional shifts that have both maybe removed accountability for elites, for example, you know, arguably the Supreme Court has made it harder to prosecute corruption, right? Are there are there institutional shifts that have removed accountability for elites or that have made the quality of governance worse, even when elites actually behave virtuously? You know, just one example of this would be that the, the political scientist Francis Fukuyama has a concept of, called mitocracy, where you have government where there's way too many veto points and thus it's impossible to get anything done. There's a lot of different possible explanations for why we seem to be governed by very incompetent people. And I don't actually have firm views about which of those explanations is true. But what I'm hoping we can get at in this conversation is, you know, probe all of them and, and see if we can come to some better sense of why exactly it is that our rulers are crap. So with that, Charles, why don't you introduce our guest? Absolutely. Our our guest today is, is Nils Gilman. Nils is the Vice President of Programs at the Bergeron Institute. He leads the Institute's research program, directs its resident fellowship program, and is also deputy editor of Noema, Noma, Noma? Noema Magazine. Thank you. Well, well welcome to the program. For, thank, thank you, you so much. For yeah. presentation. I should add, Nils, I think it's fair to say, is, is a kind of lefty who hates elites. So, you know, the, our, our listeners are probably more right-wing on average. So this will be kind of your exposure to a smart lefty's take on what ails our governance, which we, which we think it's important to provide. So with that, Nils, I mean, to, to kind of start off with a with a provocative question, so we all agree that our elites in America suck, but how much do they suck relative to elites in Europe or for that matter in China? Great question. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you to both of you for having me on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people in audiences that I'm not, I'm not usually addressing. I, I think it's fair to say that I'm something of a lefty and I'm also skeptical of elites and skeptical of a lot of the things that government does. But in the sense in which I'm a lefty is really pretty simple. I just want government to be able to do more things. And I recognize that Asking the government to do more things has to start with having a government that's capable of doing things. If you ask a government to do things that it's incapable of doing, it's inevitable that it's going to do it not at all, or if it tries to do it, it's going to do it badly. So I don't think there's any doubt that there's been a decay and a degradation in the capacity of our government to get things done, and that that's related to a decline in elites and elite probity over the last couple of generations, and I'm sure over the next 45 minutes or so, we'll get into some of the reasons for why that is. But I, but I want to just take on the question you asked directly about sort of comparative questions about how good or bad are the American elite compared to other countries. I want to bracket something and put a pin in it because we should get back to it before we're done, which is that I think we're going to be focusing here on governmental elites. But the question of governmental elites is not separable, in my opinion, from the question of other kinds of elites. We have a lot of different kinds of elites in our society, many of which are not very good at what they do, or at least are perceived in some quarters as not being good at what they do. And we have corruption of elites in business, in academia, in the clergy, you know, in, in corporations, on Wall Street. So there's not, it's not just government elites that are a problem in our country. We have elites, we have elite pro problems, problems with elites in a lot of different institutional areas. We should definitely get back to that before we're done talking about that, because I don't think that an analysis just of governmental right. malfeasance and incapacity can be done thoroughly absent a discussion of the other parts of other segments of American society. So we'll get back to that. But I want to try to answer your question about American governmental elite performance specifically. So I actually think that there are going to be libraries of interesting books written about the COVID experience over the last couple of years looking at it as a sort of natural experiment in, in government, in governance challenges. You know, every country in the world has faced the incursion or the eruption of a, of, a, of a pandemic over the last two and a half years. And some countries have conspicuously handled that much, much better than others. And, you know, this is just one, you know, one kind of governmental function, being able to turn your healthcare system around from individual provision of healthcare to group provision of healthcare. It's about being able to rally certain kinds of resources. It's about being able to manage your supply chains. There's a lot of things that go into managing or you know, effectively confronting the challenge of COVID. 
But and therefore, it's a very interesting stress test of the capacity of government in different countries. And as you just pointed out in the opening, in your opening remarks, it hasn't really broken down the way most people ideologically might have thought, oh, autocracies do particularly well or particularly badly, or dem democracies do particularly well or particularly badly. It hasn't broken down like that, you know, left-wing governments, right-wing governments within democracies. There's been certain correlation, as far as I can tell, you know, about the effectiveness of government based on type of government in terms of traditional political science categories. So what has determined it? And I just want to give a couple of examples, including, let's just take one example that I know pretty well, which is compare Denmark and Sweden, right? These are two countries that are pretty similar, right? They are, you know, they're both Scandinavians, they're fairly homogenous societies, they have, you know, cradle-to-grave welfare states, they have highly educated populations, they have supposedly a high-capacity bureaucracy, you know, they supposedly have relatively uncorrupt government leader, government, government elites. And yet the performance on COVID has been starkly different. Five times as many people per capita have died in Sweden as in Denmark. Why is that? Well, it's because the government made good choices in, in Denmark and it made bad choices in Sweden. At least if you think the, the dependent variable you're trying to solve for is reduced deaths. In fact, the dependent variable that the Swedish government was trying to solve for was not trying to reduce deaths. It was trying to keep society open, particularly for young people. And so you could say that actually they performed pretty well because they kept their society pretty open. Now, you know, many thousands of grandparents died in, in nursing homes across Sweden that didn't die in nursing homes across Denmark. But, you know, that's a matter of political values, arguably. But the point is, actually, in each case, the government at least decided what they were going to optimize for and were pretty effective in both cases. Now, then you take other countries like ours, for example, the United States, you know, the stated aims of the government, we've done very, very badly on some measures, but actually pretty well on some others, right? Operation Warp Speed, initiated under President Trump, produced a vaccine at unbelievable rates. I mean, the fastest vaccines we'd ever produced were produced five, five to 10 years in the past. We got a vaccine, mRNA vaccine, you know, out and into mass production within a year, less than a year, in fact, of you know, the emergence of this new virus. And within six months of that of the vaccines going into production, everybody who wanted to get a vaccine in this country had gotten one. And we did way better on that than other countries. Now, we did way worse in terms of being able to control the spread of the disease. And we can talk about why that is. And I don't think that's mm. necessarily about elites. I think that's actually has to do with the fact that, you know, we have a very fragmented system of government right. with many different layers responsible for different things and very poorly coordinated between the different layers. But, you know, the elite performance, I think, even in the case of the United States, when you look at COVID, there's a mixed story here. There's some things did very well. This techno-scientific elite did very well. If you want to talk about the business elites, the supply chains actually held up remarkably. You know, I, I, you know there was this moment of crisis, you know, right at the beginning where we were all worried about whether we were going to get enough toilet paper. But actually, the toilet paper supply chain turned out to be a scare that we didn't have to worry about. We may be seeing some right. downstream things happening now that may be causing inflation, partly because of supply chain disruptions. But, you know, Amazon... That part of our elite did extremely well during the during the crisis. So I think it's really variable, and I think you have to not sort of take it as a holistic thing. All elites and make large sure. generalizations. You have to look at it segment by segment, problem by problem. I think our elites do pretty well at certain parts of our elite do pretty well at solving certain kinds of problems. Other kinds of things we do a piss poor job at. To, to just stay on the comparative thing for a minute, because I I just want to drive drill in on this a little. You know, I, you've you've written before that that you're pessimistic in various ways about the prospect of the U.S. outcompeting China. So, so on what specific dimensions do you think maybe Chinese elites or the structure of their elite outperforms ours? Yeah. So I'll I'll just tell you a story. I was in Beijing for a conference maybe three or four years ago, and it was there was a bunch of Chinese senior officials giving. What I thought, what I expect would be really wooden speeches about sort of, you know, development plans, the 10 year development plan for the eastern part of the, or sort of the western part of the Pearl River Delta. And you'd think that that would be an inc incredibly boring topic. And I would have thought so too. In fact, it turned out to be riveting. They had an incredibly, incredibly ambitious plan, right? They, they want to build five new cities, 10 new universities, each in partnership with a western university. They want to build high speed rail systems. 5G and 6G technical systems. They want to basically urbanize and create a, an urban megacity that's going to have 100 million people in this. They're going to be able to do that in a way that, you know, if you propose building a new, you know, city that was 
the equivalent, you know, 7% of the US population, and you're going to build that over the 10 years with all modern infrastructure. There's no way you could get that done in this country, right? There's just absolutely no way you could get that done. Now, I don't think that's just about elites, by the way. I think it's partly because, as you were mentioning with Frank Fukuyama, we have a vitocracy, right? We have lots of places in the system where even if elites want to get things done and have plans for getting them done, there's blocking factions that exist across the spectrum using everything from environmental laws to zoning laws to you know, you know, lawsuits that'll slow things down for personal injury reasons, unions, all of these are independent actors. We have a civil society that's robust, but that ro robust civil society creates blocking factions that just makes it really hard for us to take mass action as a society. Whereas in China, because civil society is totally neutered, they can get things done in a way that's much harder for us to do, absent like a wartime footing like the, the story we saw during World War II. When, by the way, lots of civil liberties were totally overridden. So the fact that they don't respect right. civil liberties in China gives them advantages for all of society type competitions. And that really matters, I think, in the long term. Right. Well, so, so we'll get back to this and, and the question of, you know, civil liberties and, and elite accountability in a minute. But I, I it's kind of. I also want to situate this not just in kind of contemporary comparative perspective, but also within historical perspective. Yeah, just to build off of that, you know, you you Nils have written about sort of you, you have a thesis about the decline of elite accountability that Americans have gotten sort of less and less account. American leaders have gotten less accountable over the past fifty years, and you sort of say, well, this started Watergate and went downhill from there. And I will admit that I read that, and I had two thoughts. I'm I'm in the middle of reading of reading a power broker. The the Bagdara Moses and two thoughts. My first thought was one, LBJ was massively corrupt, and two, they were pretty corrupt in New York in the 1920s. And then three, have you heard about the election of 1876? I mean, I guess you know my my, my response is you could convince me that there was sort of a brief golden period when we were in the middle of the sort of total mobilization of World War II in the immediate aftermath. If you look at social statistics, like that period is peculiar for why there are high levels of social trust. Everyone goes to church. You know, all of the bully alone statistics, the peaks are right there. If you look before that, uh, things are not great. You look after that, things are not great. So, so you know, my my suspicion is that in terms of elite trustworthiness and accountability, we basically just mean regress, that we're doing about as well as we were doing towards in in, in the in the pre-World War II era. That's my argument. Why do, do you think that the current, that the status quo is somehow unique or different or you know, what, what, what is the argument for this sort of like a, a significant decline relative to the status quo ante? Yeah, so I, look, I actually think that your general narrative arc about American elites is one I would probably agree with. I mean, you look at the late 19th century, the Gilded Age famously has co incredibly corrupt elites, both at the business level, the so-called robber barons, and obviously machine politics and cities all over the country. I mean, there was elite, you know, corruption at mass scales across this country, you know, and that's part of what provoked the progressive movement, right? In in it was a good government movement, and a good government movement was it was also a movement to you know put into place restraints on the ability of monopolists, in particular, to exploit their positions vis-a-vis -vis, you know the common man in the United States. And that tradition, in fact, goes way back. And in, in you know, there's a small R Republican tradition in the United States that goes back to the colonial era, and arguably even earlier to. To, to certain traditions within within British politics before that, so there's no doubt that there, you know, was massive corruption and massive elite malfeasance that went on in the United States, particularly in the late 19th century. I think things started to get cleaned up a little bit in the early 20th century, but there's no question that there was a massive increase in governmental ambition during the 1930s, which really only began to, I think, get realized in a large scale way with the mobilization for the war during World War II, and so. The one thing I would dispute maybe is the implication that we should assume that that is a baseline, there's a sort of natural level for America of corruption, and that we're just re returning to mean. I mean, why not? Couldn't we have sustained, made a, a breakthrough to a sustained, more high capacity, you know, low malfeasance elite? Why was that not sustained? I don't think we should just treat that as sort of a natural phenomenon. It was a political project by specific groups and individuals to undo we might call the progress towards a more a more effective, high capacity and trustworthy elite. There were people who wanted to undo that because that kind of thing put a restraint on the kinds of things that elites were able to do. Before I say one more thing about that, I just want to talk about corruption for one second. Because, you know, corruption for me is something that is a little bit like hypocrisy 
or the level of filth in your house. There's an optimal level for it, and it's not zero, and it's not infinity, right? You don't actually want to live in a, to- in, in, in a clean room, right? And you, know, you, and you don't want to live in a pigsty either. You want to live in something that feels fairly clean, but it's not totally out of control. Same thing goes with hypocrisy. A little bit of hypocrisy actually makes the world go around a little bit. If we all told everybody what we think of each other all the time, totally directly, yeah, that might not be so good for social comedy, right? And the same thing goes for corruption. You know, a little bit of corruption actually greases the wheel for getting things done. The problem is that when corruption gets out of control and really grows and metastasizes, it can take over the system. And instead of people being corrupt to get things done, people become corrupt to enrich themselves. And when we make that kind of a transition and it's a phase shift and it's often invisible as it's happening, you only can really identify that that has taken place retroactively. But when that happens, then all of a sudden you're in a system where things are really, really bad. Right. You're, you're, you're talking, you spoke previously about the high levels of productivity in China. And my sort of reaction to that is, one, the Chinese Communist Party is massively corrupt and engaged in exactly the really dealing with China, right? Like the super cities, nobody lives there. They're sort of built there as, to, to, to create real wealth for the people who run the outlying provinces and want to benefit from it. On the other hand, you know, I think you were right that corruption, as it were, greases the wheels of progress. But I guess I sort of, I don't necessarily buy the, the dichotomy between you know, self-interest and public interest. I guess, I guess, how do you, how do you identify that we're beyond that point? How do you, how do you say, well, now, now people are just doing things for their own good as opposed to doing things for the public good with a little bit of corruption on the side? Yeah, that's a really good question. And as I say, I, I don't know that I have a very clear sense of the way in which one could identify that in real time. Let me, let me just give an example from America. Harry Truman, who became president almost by accident because he was you know, appointed to be FDR's vice president during the presidential election of 1944. And then, you know, FDR dies shortly after being re-inaugurated for his fourth term. And FDR comes in, sorry, Truman comes into office and takes over a massive war effort and discovers upon taking the office that there's this nuclear bomb that's being built. And, you know, who was Harry Truman? Harry Truman famously was a, quote, failed haberdasher. He'd gone bankrupt as a, as a young man when he was, you know, trying to sell, sell, sell togs on the street. But in fact, what he was was a product of the Kansas City Pendergast political machine. And the reason why he got appointed was because FDR was looking to cut a deal with the Pendergast political machine for votes in, you know, in Missouri, in, in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, you go to Kansas City, Missouri today, I don't know if you guys have been there. You go around there and it has more brutalist architecture than any other place in the country. And why is that? That's because the Pendergast, Mr. Pendergast, was the concrete king of Kansas City. And he built every, he insisted that every city contract for city works that were being built, including things that were being built under WPA contracts, under with New Deal money, it's coming from the feds, be built with Pendergast concrete. It was that kind of a place. On the other hand, so, you know, it was a totally corrupt place. And Truman was his fixer in that context. Total corruption, you might say, on one level. On another level, they built a lot of civic buildings and you go to kind of the city now, there's a lot of civic buildings. So I don't think that there's an absolute line that you can draw between what is, you know, self-dealing, at least when you're building material things, right? Does the road actually go to a place that people want to use? Will people use it after it gets done? If there's a little bit of feather bedding on the side with the union to get them to, you know, come to the table, a little bit of, you know, extra money going to a developer on the side, maybe a little bit of extra money going to, you know, the cousin of the person in office in order to make the contract happen a little bit more expeditiously. Those things don't fundamentally undermine the ability of the system to work, and in fact, may actually improve the ability of the system to get things done. The problem, of course, is when people just look at you know, the federal purse or the opportunity to make money and they say, I'm just gonna rob the till, and I don't care whether the road gets built, or I don't care whether the road falls apart after six months. And that has to do with, I think, something specifically that we wanna get into. I do think that this particular problem has gotten significantly worse in this country over the last few years. It's not just about betocracy. It is also about people seeing that they are sitting on a position that they can exploit, and they really want to take their opportunity to exploit it as much as they can for their own personal self-interest. I think this is a major, major issue in this country right now. And it's not just true at the political level. I think it's also true in other parts of, in the business community as well, where there's opportunities to loot and people stop thinking that they have any civic duties. I have a complicated analysis as to why I think this has become more of a problem. I think it has to do with inequality and growing inequality in this country, and that that provides both fear motives and opportunity motives for people to take advantage of their 
positions when they're sitting at a, at a node in the economy that allows them to take advantage of that. Right. Well, so so let's get into this. I think this is this is interesting. So 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 in your view, obviously it's a big question, but but what are the concrete policy and institutional changes that have allowed corruption to flourish more than it used to? So I think in, so. My my view is that it's been increasing basically for the last. 40, 50 years. I hate the term neoliberalism, but whatever we want to call what the last 40 years of American capitalism has been, there's no doubt that one of the things that's happened is that, you know, the really rich have gotten really, really, really rich and the somewhat rich have gotten rich and a lot of other people have stagnated, right? You know, we all know the statistics that the median wage for the bottom 80% has basically been flat since 1980 and, you know, something like 80% of all the capital gains have gone to, you know, the top 10% of which half, half has gone to the top 1%. In terms of in terms of capital accumulation, I mean these are sort of known facts. We don't have to necessarily have a diagnosis as to why that is. I think for our purposes of our conversation, we just need to note that that's a fact of what's been going on. And what that's created is a situation where lots of people feel like they personally want to, if they get into a position where they can grab stuff, they want to do that both out of fear, as I said, and out of and out of greedy opportunity. The greedy opportunity is obvious, right? If you're sitting in a position where you can, you know make money by your position. For example, let's say you're, I don't know, a swim coach at a Pac-10 school, right? You can make a little bit of money off of that because there's people who want to get into a Pac-10 school and, you know, you can get somebody's cousin to sell you a half-price condo in Tahoe and nobody's really going to know the difference about the fact that you got the half-price condo in Tahoe in exchange for putting somebody, you know, on the dean's list to be admitted as, a, as an athlete to your swim team. You can do that. You know, there's all sorts of arrangements you can make that way. And there's almost no way for anybody in the university administration to have any awareness that stuff is going on. Well, why do you do that? Well, because you look at all these other people who are making money on Wall Street and saying greed is good and being lionized for it. And there's a kind of moral decay and a moral attraction to that, right? So there's, on the one hand, there's a pull of greed. And we've institutionalized greed, for lack of better word, being good, to quote Gordon Gecko from Wall Street in 1988, right? That sort of ethos, which I think is centered on Wall Street, or at least was centered on Wall Street before the financial crisis, maybe now is centered in Silicon Valley, right? That ethos, I think, has like spread out into the rest of society to a large extent. So people see an opportunity, they're like, well, other people are grabbing it. I have this one opportunity, I should go for it. The flip side of it is that because there's been so much stagnation at the lower level, and because there's very little social mobility between levels, people are really afraid that if they don't grab the opportunity when it comes their way, they're subject to downward mobility in a society where the consequences of downward mobility are extremely harsh. You look at societies where the elites in the government behave relatively well. These are generally societies where there's a lot of social mobility, A, and B, the consequences for downward social mobility are not catastrophic. I'm thinking in places that's otherwise different as an autocracy like, like Singapore and a democracy like Denmark. These are high social mobility societies and you know, if you end if you're in the in the top 10% and your kids end up in the 25th percentile, it's not a total social calamity the way people in the top 10% of the United States perceive it to be as total social calamity if your kid ends up in the 25th percentile. And so I think people also feel like, oh my God, I've got to do this. I owe it to my family. I've got to protect my people. I've got to protect my tribe. I've got to do this when I can. So I think there's also a fear factor that drives the malfeasance that we're seeing. In business, you know, to some extent, like people say, oh, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with becoming a billionaire, right? Even if it means that you destroyed a thousand news, a thousand local newspapers that each employed 500 local people and that we're keeping an eye on, you know, on the local politicians and we're a countervailing force, or maybe we're in their pocket, but who knows? You know, if the fact that the way that I made money was by building an app that displaced all those people and I become a multi-billionaire because of that, these people get lionized, right, in our society. And so, you know, then people in other parts of society that don't have direct money-making opportunities say, well, why not me? And so I think that that ethos has really infected a large part of our society. So I think it's a moral decay problem that is, I believe, emanates out of the greed is good ethos in business, but then is spread throughout the society. And so now there's sort of no shame in Obama selling his memoir for $50 million or, you know, George Bush senior joining Texas Pacific Group and turning himself into a hundred multi hundred million dollar millionaire afterwards, basically cashing in on the public service they did for personal gain. That's after the fact. We wouldn't consider that corruption in the sense of quid pro quo selling of services, but it's corruption in any moral sense, in, in any moral sense of the term. And the reason I bring up those particular presidential examples 
is that it's, it's not like it's happening on one side of the aisle or another. It's happening across the board. Right. So, 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 so it seems like, I mean, your story places a lot of stress on kind of successive norm violations and how that kind of normalizes things. And, and you connect that to this greed is good ethos. I sort of want to ask two, two related questions. One, sort of just what, do you see any kind of policy or judicial changes that have institutionalized that ethos? Like, like, did it just kind of happen by chance or is, or is there like a real, were there concrete decisions that were made? And then the other question that I think is connected is, you know, you were talking about the, the varsity blue scandal, what have you. So, so one, one thing people often bring up is like, ah, meritocracy, you know, when everyone feels like they've earned their privileges, that erodes the sense of noblesse of bleach. So, so how do you think that that's an important cultural force? Is talk, talk about all of that. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about the, the last question about the meritocracy, providing a kind of excuse for people to benefit themselves from their positions, their elite positions. You know, the, the person who's made that argument, I think, most systematically recently is Michael Sandel, the, the Harvard philosopher. I think his, the title of the book is The Myth of Meritocracy. And you know, that's exactly what he argues, Aaron, as you, I'm sure you know. I think you're tacitly referring to the book. You know, he argues that, you know, meritocracy, if it means selecting people for positions of power based on their competence, you know, merit as a concept is something we need to defend. We need to defend the concept of excellence. And I've this is, you know, maybe separate topic from from this this particular topic in this podcast. But I'm I'm on the record, very much in believing that we have to defend the concept of merit. The problem is that when it becomes it's the it's the ocracy part, right? The fact that people think that because you know they have merit and talent that this means they quote deserve power and that power should also come with material rewards. You can see how that quickly becomes a logic for self enrichment. Maybe through you know things that are formally illegal, like in varsity blues, or maybe just you know bidding up your salaries in in various forms, right? So there's a lot of fury in universities, for example, about the fact that administrators get paid so much. Why do administrators get paid so much? Well, because executives at other kinds of large organizations get paid a lot of money. So why not executives here? And so it's created a logic of that. So you know, if you want to talk about institutions that have created that or or fed into that cultural problem, you know. There's a, there's a famous paper from the 1970s that basically became the justification for the, what we now would call the cult of shareholder value, right? Is that, you know, we should basically make sure that we're going to reward the executives at a very high level with equity so that their incentives will be aligned with those of the shareholders. And so that we will be able to undo what was then the big problem, which was the perception of agent principle problems between executives who were running the companies basically to keep their jobs and maybe to keep the unions on side rather than to benefit these punitive owners of those companies, namely the shareholders in the company. Well, you know, that's that's great. You know, it's certainly true that like once you gave the CEO 5% of the company and that was his major form of compensation, he became very, very focused on making sure that the price of that stock went up no matter what. And it certainly got that alignment in place. On the other hand, it kicked off a thing where, you know, if you go back to the mid-1970s, the ratio between the CEO and the uh, regular man's pay at most, uh, most Fortune 500 companies, if I recall correctly, the ratio was something like 30 to 1. By, you know, nowadays, it's 400 to 1, right? So you've got a 10x shift in the amount, of, the amount of compensation that's going to the very top of an organization. So, you know, that's one thing that's actually made a concrete change. The carried interest loophole, which created effectively created the private equity industry, created lots and lots of billionaires who basically make money by shifting around paper or shifting around digits on a computer, not by particularly you know adding value by building things. That's you know created the cult of finance, and you know indirectly was one of the things that fed into you know the kind of pursuit of financial innovation that led to the financial crisis in 2007 and 8. So I think those were other things that, like as a matter of policy, created a set of incentives fed into the problem that we're referring to here. I can enumerate things in the tax code that also created similar incentives for people to just enrich themselves all the time. There are other things that have happened in terms of you know, policies in educational institutions, which have encouraged elites to self-deal to get their kids into these places. Again, partly out of fear that if they don't get their kids into these places, their kids are going to be downwardly mobile. So allowing inequality to get out of control, which is a policy choice, right? That too has created incentives 
for elites to defend their positions and to produce things that we would consider corrupt to make sure that their kids are going to be not in a position to fall fall down below the level they themselves are at. And that in itself also then creates, you know, in a, in a vicious circle, makes the class system more sclerotic and makes it harder for people lower down to get ahead, delegitimates the people at the top. So, you know, there's a circular problem in that level too. But there are policy choices we've made as a society that really have made a really big difference for this, I think. Yes. So, 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 so I think to, to some extent, yours is a story about the decline of an honor culture. Do you think that's accurate? Right. There's, yeah, you, you, you tell in, 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 in one of the, in, in one of the articles that you've written that you, that you wrote at the American Interest, actually, you tell the story about John Perfumo, whose name I may be not pronouncing correctly. Yeah. Who's, who's a great, uh, he's a politician implicated in the sex scandal who, you know, resigned because he felt it was the honorable thing to do for the rest of his days in relative anonymity. And I suppose, you know, part of what I want to push back on is it seems to me that there is, if not honor in the in the sort of strict academic sense, certainly a face culture among contemporary elites. Mark Zuckerberg spends huge quantities of his money signaling that he is one of the good guys. Warren Buffett, Bill Clinton, Jeff Bezos. The, the, you know, Elon Musk is maybe kind of flaunting it, flouting it, but he's kind of an exception to the rule. And, you know, I just did high profile ones. I can name you a long list of billionaires, William Powell Jobs, Reed Hoffman, LinkedIn guy, who invest in fairly socially respected causes. And I think this is in part because they say, you know, just they, they, they want to project the image that they are not self-dealing. So, and then I'll, I'll get to the question. It seems to me like, even in the 50s and 60s, there was corruption but it was sort of, it was, it was obscured. There was a sense that like, it, it, you know, hypocrisy is the attribute that vice pays to virtue. There's a fair amount of hypocrisy, something like LBJ. But it seems to me like the same thing is true now. I can believe that, that Jeff Bezos is, is corrupt and a weirdo. That's not hard for me to believe. But it does seem to me like he too is engaging in the light hypocrisy in the same way. So insofar as you think ultimately a moral degradation is going on here, how do you square that with the claims of moral, uh, moral decay? Yeah, it's a good question. So, yeah, by the way, like, just to point this out, you know, previous generations of robber barons were also major philanthropists. And you know, my, my, about, my, my, my parents were for, both worked for Carnegie Mellon University. There you go. Carnegie Mellon, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, you know, there's lots of examples. And, you know, as, uh, as in our own time, not all of the, you know, really rich guys in the Gilded Age behave that way. The ones we remember are the ones who put their names on institutions like Carnegie Mellon or Leland Stanford, who was a railroad baron, or you know, you know Rockefeller, Ford, etc. Not all of them did. Jay Gould, you know, was one of the biggest, most rapacious Wall Street financiers of the late 19th century. He didn't donate anything, and so hardly anybody remembers it. You know, so you know, there's going to be people like that. I do think that there's no question that somebody like Bill Gates. And he said this explicitly when he stepped down from being the CEO of Microsoft to go run the Gates Foundation, that he thought he would be more remembered for what he did at the Gates Foundation than what he did for Microsoft. And on current trends, he may end up being right about that. People hardly remember that Microsoft was the great villain, the great monopolist villain of the late 1990s. Given everything that's happened since, you know, Microsoft seems like, you know, the kinder, gentler piece of the major tech monopolists, relatively speaking, to some of the others that we have today. So I don't think there's any doubt that there's been, you know, attempt to do, let's say, reputation laundering with people's money that goes way back. And people have been trying to do that arguably since the 19th century, buying indulgences from the church. So, I mean, since the Middle Ages, buying indulgences from the church, you know, this is, this is a secular version of the same kind of thing. But I do think that the, the story I want to tell about, about moral decline has to do, and I, as I say, it has to do with incentives to behave differently. But I do think that there used to be a culture of honor that has progressively declined among particularly political elites in this country. You know, we could do a whole series of things. John Profumo, the Profumo scandal that you were talking about, this is actually something that happened in Britain in the the mid-1960s. But I have a hard time remembering, you know, the last time a major American politician was brought low by by a sex scandal that didn't involve, as the saying goes, a dead girl or a live boy. You know, so Bill Clinton just decided, I don't care that I got done, got caught doing something that was absolutely terrible, which by the way, you know, would he get away with that in the post-Me Too era? Hell no, right? So like there was this particular moment I mean, Al, where he- Al Franken is the example I thought of. 
Yeah, and you know, and, and a lot of times people on the left now think that Al Franken did the wrong thing by resigning, right? And I actually think Al Franken did the right thing by resigning, but he, you know, he's the exception that sort of proves the rule right now. You know, Matt Gates, he's like partying with like teenage teenage hookers and blow and ecstasy, and he doesn't care. He just keeps, you know, serving, you know, the Redback Riviera district that's the first district in Florida, and they love him for it, right? So there's like no, you know. He's behaving like what they all kind of wish they were doing themselves, right? So I do think there's a larger question of the moral decay of the country that then feeds back into why they tolerate. And it's a feedback loop, right? When elites behave that way, that creates a permission structure for people, you know, regular people to behave that way. And if people see that kind of behavior in their day-to-day lives, they're much less likely to, to condemn their elites for behaving the same kind of way. So I do think that these corruption issues and, you know, feed into each other. Now, you know, there's a large structural question we might ask about what the relationship is between the kind of moral corruptions, quote unquote, moral corruptions we see, for example, sex scandals versus financial corruption. And I don't want to over-index on Bill Clinton, but Bill Clinton would seem to suggest that there's at least some correlation between these two kinds of things. Well, so so I think this is actually getting at something, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's worth exploring, which is, you know, you you clearly and I too would like a culture in which people apologize and kind of you know take responsibility when they do something bad. It seems like part of the problem is that we now have pretty strong empirical evidence that apologies don't actually work, and that in fact it can be in people's interest to not apologize. You know, Trump. I think part of what made him effective was he just kind of said "fuck you." Like, I don't care, you know, and voters loved it. And more recently, there's this really fascinating case study oh, yeah, at, at Georgetown, where as Professor Elias Shapiro, he, he, you know, made a poorly worded but not horrible tweet. Now my colleague. Yes, he is now your colleague, Charles. True. But, but so what's interesting is that, you know, he apologized for wording it badly. And a lot of people said, ah, like, you know, you really shouldn't punish him because the guy apologized. But what did Georgetown do in their diversity report? They say, ah, well, the fact that he apologized proves that he, you know, thought that like what he did was bad. See, therefore, like we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, really put him on thin ice. And so, you know, there's kind of a, a it seems like there's a dynamic where, in fact, apologies often hurt. And that that's an incentive structure kind of baked into the culture that probably discourages the kind of, you know, responsibility taking that you'd like. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think, I don't think there's any doubt that that's the case. Trump realized, I mean, Trump is an interesting case. I actually think, unlike Ilya, I don't know Ilya at all, but I, I suspect he wasn't trying to offend anybody, yes, per right, se. Right. Whereas I think Trump, it was actually a media strategy, like get inside, you know, the, the, the loop of, because, you know, the way the media always tried to deal with politicians who said stupid things, made gaps before Trump, was if somebody said something stupid, they would like, you know, then they would, every day you try not to say things stupid. Once in a while you would say something stupid, and then the media would sort of go after you and try to get you to admit that you've done something wrong for weeks at a time, right? Trump's strategy was say, say something outrageous every single day, so the media never got a chance to chase them down. The mainstream media never got a chance to chase chase him down on any of it. And furthermore, he was never bothering to apologize anyways. And he sort of made a mockery of the whole idea that the media should be holding him accountable for anything, right? Like he just, he rejected that whole premise and in a sense, enacted a mockery of it every single day in, you know, with his Twitter stream. So I, I think he's a little bit of a different case, but I think that Trump was, you know, whatever else you can say about him was kind of a genius about how to manipulate the media and understood the media environment that he was operating in you know, at least as much as Obama did when he became president in 2008 and realized that he could organize people using Facebook. I mean, Trump understood the power of Twitter and direct contact by, bypassing the mainstream media in 2016. He was at least as much of a savant about that as the Obama operation was in 2008 with respect to Facebook. So I do think that the media environment has also created a feeding frenzy around this stuff where, you know, it seems like if a thousand people pile on to somebody who said a stupid tweet, and all of a sudden there's like, oh my God, the entire internet is, is piling on to me. And there's like 400 million people on Twitter, a thousand people, even a hundred thousand people piling on you for saying something stupid is actually a teeny tiny fraction of what's going on there. And so to some extent, there's a question of brazenness 
the people, you know, you just got to like, I mean, I, you know, I've been, I've been tweeting for years and I've had some things where people came after me who said poorly worded things. I didn't apologize because I know that there's no percentage in apologized, right? There's none. It's just better to be like, okay, we're going to move on to the next conversation. But I do think it's a problem when that becomes an excuse for actually not just not apologizing, but feeling directly shameless. Um, And, you know, Trump also, I would argue, I I don't know the guy, but like, he certainly didn't seem like he had a lot of shame that he was trying to cover up. I think that was, again, part of his, you know, genius capacity as a politician is he was uniquely capable of behaving with zero shame. And, you know, I'm not sure that there's anybody else who's really ever been like that that I've seen that's quite as shameless as him. But you're right. I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree with the general assessment that like there's a disincentive for people to be able to apologize, people to accept the apology. There's also like a lot of stuff in our culture right now where people don't assume good faith. There's also a lot of bad faith actors who pretend, you know, to be acting in good faith as part of their bad faith shtick. I would cite Milo Yiannopoulos as a classic example of that on the right. There might also be people like that on the left. There's people like, with all due respect to your sometime colleague, Christopher Rufo, who are unapologetic about that, about that as a strategy for undermining, you know, undermining what they perceive as their political enemies. So, you know, there's a generalized problem that we have, and there's slightly different flavors of this on the right and the left, but the pylon culture is a huge part of the problem here because it creates a disincentive for taking responsibility for things, even when you know you've done something wrong. Right. Well, and, th- and this, I think, ties into a theme we like to get at in the show on how on how kind of contingent technological developments mediate a lot of our dysfunction, right? Because, you know, this just wouldn't happen in the same way without the internet, right? So to, the last the last big bucket of questions I think we have for you, I mean, we, this is great, we could go on forever, but we, we, we are running short on time. But so th- this is the last substantive thing. So, you know, you draw a distinction between kind of maybe what you could call IQ and like operational competence, right? And you say, you know, it's not just, it's not just about the ability to design a really good policy on paper. It's about the ability to carry it out. And that's what Amazon and the U.S. military are very good at and arguably what some other bureaucracies in the United States are bad at. You also said in our conversation that you, while you're critical of meritocracy, do want to defend the concept of merit. So I want to ask about the U.S. civil service exam. And in particular about various Supreme Court precedents that have made it harder to offer standardized tests in the government. The the political scientist Richard Hanania has argued that, you know, hey, you you liberals want to have a competent government. Well, it's like illegal to 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 put in place the tests that might secure like a very competent civil service because they're they are going to have a racially disparate impact and because of griggs the the supreme court decision griggs you know tests that have a disparate impact really have to pass very strict scrutiny and it's just very hard to design a test that the courts will say is is legitimate if it if it has a big disparate impact so i want to kind of push you know how much do you think that sort of some of this has to do with just our not so much the elites but like just the the regular normal people working in government maybe being less competent and how might we fix that? Yeah, that's a, there's a lot of different pieces of that question. Let me try to take a couple of them apart. Sure. The first thing is about how we select elites and, you know, the civil service exam is the front door to, to getting into government. Regardless of what we think of the exam in its specifics, I would argue that we need some kind of a filter for competence for any kind of right, a job, really, right. maybe not any kind of a job. I, I do think that we have a perhaps over-licensing tendency. I'm not sure we need to have an exam for people who want to be hairdressers, for example, as is sure. true in something like, you know, two-thirds of the states in this country. But, you know, for other kinds of things, we definitely, I think we might very much want to have an exam for, you know, electricians so that they don't wire up the houses so they burn down, right? That's the front door, though. And it's only really the front door. After you get into a job, right? then you should be judged based on the performance that you're doing inside the job, right? And we have to have as objective standards as we can. And there are known administrative technologies, if you will, in other countries that we could implement here. And I do think that some of the law about ensuring that there's never disparate impact in terms of the way in which those advancement decisions take place, you know, are potentially difficult around that. Mm -hmm. Again, the military, you know, is an example of that. We have 
in the United States, a military, which is the most legitimately meritocratic institution in the country, I would say, at least until you get to the level of general officer. Once you get past that level, it's a very political and explicitly so very political decision who gets promoted beyond, you know, to general officer and, you know, to steps beyond that. But if you go through the ranks up through colonel, it's very clear what you need to do. And some people are better at doing those things than others. And those people get promoted. And the people who aren't good, you know, get mustered out. And that's just how it goes. And it works pretty well. Now, I'm not sure we want to have the entire society regimented like the military, but high performance organizations, private sector organizations have a pretty similar system for evaluating their employees. I've worked in some of these and, you know, whether it's management consultancies or General Electric or, or Amazon.com, I'm thinking more of headquarters and the way they evaluate employees in, in warehouses, which I know less about, but like these are all organizations that have very, very clear standards for performance. It's not just about the front door and the exam to get into the room. It's about how you perform on the job that determines whether you get promoted over time. And so I think that's, you know, there are, there are, there are, you know, opportunities to emulate those mechanisms in organizations in the, in the government as well, I would say. Right. There's a second dimension to this though, which is, you know, government, a government job in this country and I'm thinking here not so much of federal jobs. I'm thinking here more of state and local jobs. You know, these are good jobs on one level. They are pretty stable. You usually often belong to a union. You pretty much only get fired for cause. On the other hand, you know, they, they often have defined benefit pension plans, which is pretty unusual. A lot of people in the private sector have that anymore. So, you know, they, they're, they're jobs that have stability and perks associated with them. They're also not jobs that pay particularly well compared to jobs you can get with similar education levels and similar you know, amounts of work in the private sector. You get paid significantly less. You look at high-performing bureaucracies in other countries, again, I, I, would go to, I would go to Singapore and Denmark as an example. Like, these people get paid a lot of money, you know, it's, it's, it, and it's therefore partly considered a high-prestige thing. If you're like a young minister, you know, a junior minister in the Singaporean government, you're going to be mm -hmm. making hundreds of thousands of dollars as a 30-year-old working in those kinds of places. And that creates incentives where people want to go do that. Like it's, it, it's well remunerated and high prestige. Those are the kinds of jobs people want. If you have a situation where it's perceived, ah, well, you know, it's just, you know, like the DMV, that's not something you feel proud necessarily talking about other people with. And it's not something you're going to be able to buy a house in most, in a lot of cities uh, on that salary. So, you know, that's, I think that's a big problem too. We should pay our, we should pay our people more. We'd get better people in those jobs. Right. Well, so I just sort of in closing, I, I mean, I think this is interesting because it, it gets to, I wouldn't say it's a contradiction at all in your thinking, but I think it's an interesting maybe tension or, or irony, which is that, you know, you, you, you worry about this kind of neoliberal unfettered capitalism, you yeah, know, it's causing like, like, like all these problems. But then when it comes to how to make the government better, it seems like your answer is effectively make it more like a private corporation, right? With more, more focus on, you know, merit-based hiring and promotion and, you know, high remuneration for, for competence. I mean, so do, do you see this as a tension and, and sort of what are, what are the lessons you would take, take from this? So I believe in administration and I think administration is a, is a general art that is equally applicable to any large bureaucratic organization, whether it's a large corporation or the, or the, you know, the state or state bureaucracies as well. I don't see them as requiring fundamentally different skills. I've worked as a senior bureaucrat in a state organization. I was the chief of staff to the chancellor at UC Berkeley for four years. And the skills that were required there are very similar to the kinds of skills I've had to exercise in the private sector when I've been managing complex organizations in the private sector. It's not fundamentally different. I'm sitting as I speak to you in France, which is the sort of one of the epicenters for this kind of bleed over between the private sector and the government sector. And there's all sorts of secondments that happen between the private sector and the government where people go from the government and, you know, they may be trying to have a career in the government, but they'll go out and they'll do a tour of duty in some private sector company to learn some skills there or people in the private sector who get seconded into government for a while to be able to learn the kinds of things that are going on there. So these things go on much, much more in other countries. The problem is those things end up getting perceived potentially as corruption. So when the I'm thinking of a specific example, right? Like the economic attache to the German embassy in China, whose job it is 
to get China to allow Mercedes to build Mercedes factories in China and Volkswagen and BMW and Audi, right? I happen to know that guy is on a a four-year secondment, I believe from Audi, right? He's a senior executive at Audi and this is the job he's going off and doing. Audi's continuing to pay him his Audi salary, right? While he's working for the government, supposedly doing government business. The result is that China's, you know, there's a lot of German manufacturers that are getting to build companies, build factories in China, and there's not a lot of Americans who are doing that either. So is that corruption or is that competence in action? Again, like, I don't think that there's a bright line and it has to do whether that particular guy is using it to enrich himself or whether he's actually Mm -hmm. promoting some larger set of goods beyond himself. And if you don't believe, and this is maybe, you know, Charles, where I might push back on the thing you said right away, if you don't believe as a matter of principle, that there's any distinction between you know personal interest and the public interest, which has been a point of ideological faith in certain quarters of the right for the last 50 years. If you really believe that, then there's no way you're ever going to have anything other than self-dealing elites. If, on the other hand, you try to maintain a moral discourse that maintains the difference between self-enrichment and the pursuit of the public good, then at least you have a chance that sometimes people are not going to act in purely self-interested ways. So I think that's a good bridge to, to closing yeah. thoughts. So, so Charles, how, how do you respond to, to Nils's kind of yeah, challenge? Well, no, I mean, I think, I think there were two answers and, and, and this is sort of my closing, you know, I'm, I'm, I walked into the conversation, I come out of the conversation sort of the sense that not even so much that, that, you know, self-interest is just positive is, is, is the comprehensive source of all progress in society, but that, you know, a, a certain hard-nosed realism is, and I think Nelson has to about this, a certain hard-nosed realism is essential in thinking about how politics actually functions. You know, I would say, and here are the two things. One is that wheeling dealing self-interest sort of toward, wheeling dealing self-interest often can go towards the common good, that you can get people to build a lot of stuff, that you can produce benefits for constituents, and a well-aligned political system means that you want to produce benefits to constituents. Through through sort of through sort of self interest, you know, I think the the big theme that we didn't really talk about is 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 what the Greeks called kleos, the sort of desire to be remembered by history, and I think that that is the sort of the 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 self interest that motivates the construction of great things. My my sort of heretical take is that the the figure in American society most motivated by kleos today is Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and uh, no, who's who who really profoundly believed the, the, the one man in American society who still wants to carve his name every single thing he sees is Donald Trump. And I think that, that explains the success of Operation War Speed. I think that explains any of a number, you know, the even number of things that went wrongly in the administration. But lots of where there were successes, I think there were most reasonable analysts will agree that there were successes. They were a product of Trump's desire to be historic, to be remembered. Yeah, you know, I think it's sort of a, a copy to say, you know, how, how do you instill chaos? That's a separate conversation. But I do think, you know, if you want to square that circle of rational, you know, self-interest versus interest in the public, that that's where the account starts. Aaron, do you have, do you have closing thoughts? Yeah. You know, I, I, I was struck by, by Nils's comments about, you know, it being hard to draw a fine line as to what the optimal, you know, number amount of corruption is or not. And it seems, it seems like you could say the same about inequality where it's a little hard to, 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 say with any delineate with any certainty what's too much inequality it occurs to me that that you know one explanation for this is just sort of you know sorties paradox these are just inherently hard things to 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 get but the other the other possible explanation i'm left left with is that we may be making a bit of a, a category error in, in thinking that the the relevant dimension here is too much or too little it, it might be more a, a question of how corruption and inequality or are structured and distributed and there, and it may be that there can be quote unquote, you know, two societies may have the same amount, however you define that, of corruption or inequality, but they may be kind of, you know, structured differently, right? It may be that the inequality is more sort of inequality within bureaucracies that is that is very heavily tied to performance, right? And that might be healthy for a certain kind of competence, right? Or it may be, you know, the corruption. It, it, you know, if it, if the corruption works the way it does with, say, the Audi dealer or someone else, it may that may be good corruption that we want more of. But if the corruption, you know, is happening in a kind of different set of institutional arrangements, it might be bad corruption. All of which is just to say, like, yeah, these things are overdetermined. But it, but it, 
I'm left with the conversation almost thinking, yeah, I don't know if corruption and inequality are that bad intrinsically, but clearly what we need to be thinking about more is how do you channel those things so that they have positive benefits? Because it does seem to me, and and here I will sort of agree with Nils, perhaps slightly contrary to Charles, there are certain ways in which it just feels like our, you know, it's a bit of an ineffable thing, but like our elites just suck more. I mean, I don't know, like, 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 like you see some of this crap and you're like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. And, and. Wouldn't know what JFK was doing in the White House? I I wasn't governing. Well, you know, yeah, but like, but like, and, and yet, and yet I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we, that we have this intuition that things have gotten worse. I mean, I mean, Charles, you yourself are the one who opened, you, you yourself opened by saying, you know, I'm a bit of a populist. I, I, you know, I'm skeptical of these distinctions between elites and the people to, to which I'd say, well, then you should ought to be an epistemic populist and, and judge the kind of subjective evaluations of the people. And I would say that the subjective evaluations of the people tend to comport with Nils, that things have gotten shittier. And so, yeah. and so we should take as veridical those, those, those evaluations. All, 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 all I'm saying is that Joe Biden has thus far refused to expand the Supreme Court, which means in terms of willingness to put pressure on nominally independent institutions, he's beating the hell out of FDR. So again, but that's well. I, I mean, I feel like we have to. Well, there but, there was the whole there was the whole economic collapse and new. There there were a lot of contingent reasons why maybe that court packing thing was not as crazy. Anyway, it's pretty crazy. Okay, okay. I mean, we should we right. we, we we should move on to recommendations. So, and have a recommendation for our listeners <laughs> this week. Yeah, so I, I would recommend Francis Fukuyama's Political Order and Political Decay. It's actually, he has like a two-volume work. I've only read the second volume, but it's really, really good. It's long, but it's engaging. And he charts through, he goes through kind of the history of the U.S. administrative state and looks at why, I think it's it's like the forestry, it's like the Department of Forestry or something. It basically, there's like certain departments that work really well or historically did work really well and others that didn't. And he kind of looks at the structural determinants of why parts of the U.S. state are a lot more efficient than other parts. And it's just, it's a good book. Everyone should read it. Charles? Yeah. So I'm, I, and I mentioned this, I think at the top of the show, I'm working my way through Robert Caro's The Power Broker, Robert Moses' The Fall of New York. It's Caro's. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the 20th century's definitive work of biography, but it's, it's Kara's biography of Robert Moses, the man who built much of the infrastructure, cities, parkways, roads, et cetera, in New York, but it's really a study of political power. It's like, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a tome and like, it doesn't sound like it should be as engrossing as it is. Like I sit down at dinner every night and I sit in my life, like, did you know that Robert Moses spent this much money? And this is what he did. Right now I'm learning about how he got the land titles to Jones Beach through, through an elaborate yeah, like basically he he threatened people to get them. But it's I mean, it's 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 an astonishing work. It's about how American how American power works in America. So I recommend it to everybody. Nils, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Well, Aaron, Aaron took the one that I was gonna make, which was exactly the Fukuyama piece. Let me first say I, I totally second your endorsement of both volumes, both the origins of political order and and the second volume, which is I think called political order and political decay. They're both yeah. great. But let me let me give another pair of things that I think are usual that are well read together. And actually we didn't touch on so much in this conversation, but is really an important part of the conversation as well. There's a pair of essays that were both published just or they were both produced just a year apart in the late 1960s. One was called The Technological Fix by the head of Oak Ridge National Labs, Alvin Weinberg. And he argued that in that piece that, you know, we could apply to social problems the same kinds of technological technocratic systems that were so effective at building electrical systems and sewage systems and so on. And he believed that social problems were going to be just as easy to fix once the social science got as good as the physical science. And it sort of represents, in my view, the very high point of kind of high modernist faith in the ability to just solve, the government can solve all problems, right? And, you know, this is happening as he's, you know, he's publishing and giving these speeches as the Great Society programs are getting launched, as we start to see race riots across the country, as the best and the brightest are pushing us into Vietnam. And so within a couple of years after him publishing The Technological Fix, there's a pair of sociologists, Weber and Riddle, who published a a famous essay that actually only gets published in 73, but they start giving the talk 
on a regular basis, I think in 1968, about what they call wicked problems. And they say there's certain categories of problems that government is pretty good at solving. And then there's other kinds of problems, specifically social problems that involve you know, zero-sum game, non-paradal optimal solutions, where the government is not going to be able to find technocratic solutions, inherently political problems. And when the government either is assigned or voluntarily takes on those kinds of challenges, they're almost always going to be perceived either to be overstepping and or failing to do what they're saying they want to do. And so I think one of the reasons why we're seeing governmental failure at an operational level is because the low-hanging fruit for government action was kind of picked in the middle of the 20th century through people like Robert Caro and all of his devious methods. And as we pushed back into the late part of the 20th century, the kinds of problems, the big problems that were left were social problems that were not amenable to the same kinds of technological, governmental technological solutions. So I think reading those two pairs of essays together, which come just a couple of years apart, that's really the diamond hinge when people start to lose faith in the capacity of government to solve problems because the kinds of problems the government is taking on are no longer problems that governments are good at taking on. Okay, well that's, I'm gonna check this out. This is great recommendations. Thank you, that's all the time that we have. So thank you to Nils for joining us. Thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, bribes, other corrupt offers that you'd like to send our way, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. Other than that, until next time, I am Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope that you'll join us again soon. 